Welcome to We Are Chafee Looking Upstream, a conversational podcast of humanness, community, and well-being based in Chafee County, Colorado. I'm Adam Williams. Today I'm talking with Travis Macy. Travis is a professional endurance athlete and an author, among other things. He has a new book out, A Mile at a Time. It's a collaboration with his father, the legendary endurance athlete Mark Mace Macy, and Patrick Regan, another author who lives here in Chafee County, Colorado. At this point, I could spend the full hour of this show just listing and talking about Travis and Mace's extraordinary athletic resumes. Both of these men are incredibly rare athletes, and from everything I can tell, amazing humans as well. It's that last part, the humanness in their story, that we're especially going to focus on here today. Because, well, that's what we do at Looking Upstream. You might have seen Travis and Mace on the Amazon Prime series that came out a few years ago, called Eco Challenge Fiji. That was my introduction to their story, to Mace's Alzheimer's diagnosis, to their history and capabilities as athletes, and to their father-son relationship. Honestly, because of that story that was shared during their adventure in Fiji, they're the only ones I remembered from having watched the Eco Challenge series. So I'm so grateful to have this opportunity to go deeper into that story with Travis. We talk about the impact of Mace's Alzheimer's and the ambiguous sense of loss and grief along the way. We talk about the role of humor and choosing happiness and facing life with courage. We talk about Travis and Mark's relationship as father and son and about love, optimism, and resilience and other things that spark laughter and maybe a few tears too. This feels like a fast conversation. Travis's dynamic energy is infectious. He's a high energy, get things done guy who's quick to smile and to offer a handshake. I got caught up in it. And I really enjoyed getting to talk with him. And I think you'll enjoy getting to listen and to learn from him. We Are Chafee Looking Upstream is a collaboration with the Chafee County Department of Public Health and the Chafee Housing Authority. And it's supported by the Colorado Public Health and Environment Office of Health Disparities. Show notes, including the transcript of today's conversation and relevant links like travismacy.com and salidabooks.com, where you can find and buy a mile at a time, they're all on this episode's webpage at wearechafee.org. Now, here we are with Travis Macy. Travis, thanks for coming in and talking with me. I appreciate your being here. I've been looking forward to it. Yeah, me too, Adam. It truly is an honor to uh, be here with you and, and with the audience and, and just to be part of the Chafee County community. Um, I, I, I love it here and being part of this team is really important to me. I agree. I, I love it here too. And, you know, I, I just told you, but when I watched you a couple of years ago on Amazon Prime with the Eco Challenge Fiji, I had no idea we would have this opportunity. So it's so cool that, well, not only you have moved to this area, but so have I only a couple of years ago. Yeah. And now here we are. Yeah. Yeah. No, good, good deal. Uh, my wife, Amy, and I just constantly pinch ourselves of how, how lucky we are um, Absolutely. to be living here in Salida. I love it too. Uh, so I know you've been a busy man. Well, actually, I think it looks like you always are, but especially with this new book of yours, you've I've been paying attention on Instagram. I see that you're traveling, you're out there speaking, you're talking about the book. Some of it is with your dad, Mark. Mm -hmm. uh, how's that been going? 
Good. Uh, yeah, you know, it has, um, it's been busy for sure. Our, our book, A Mile at a Time, um, hit shelves March 14th. And, um, you know, we've been thankful that it's been well received and generated a lot of opportunities to go he- here and there and sign books and speak and stuff. And um, like you said, mostly I've been filled with gratitude that my dad's been able to do a lot of it with me. Um, he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's in 2018. And uh, the disease has progressed and um, he needs a lot of support and, and things look a lot different than they did uh, when we did that, that Eco Challenge race in Fiji in 2019, which um, went on Amazon Prime in, in 2020. Um, but there's still, you know, he's doing an incredible job of, of finding happiness and he loves hanging out with people and BSing. And um, so in, any chance we get to do something together it's a it's a huge plus for all of us it sounds like that's the same mace it's always been based on what i know through your book yeah it is and and we you know that's a um that's a fortunate blessing in itself a lot of people who have neurodegenerative conditions uh their personality is impacted and, and you know it's not the person's fault it's not that they're not resilient or, you know, whatever. It's just kind of luck of the draw. Parts of the brain are impacted where a person's personality literally changes. And fortunately, that hasn't happened uh, to dad. You know, he still very much is himself, um, even if there are very significant limitations with particularly in the visual spatial realms and, you know, memory realms, obviously, word finding, etc. But, uh, you know, as his core, his, his personality is there. And that's that's great. That's remarkable. I had a little bit of this experience with a grandmother of mine, my mm. my mother's mother, and I would see the way she would act towards other women in the living, um, you know, place where she was. And we would, I would visit her on occasion. We'd go to the cafeteria, and I'd see the way she would literally get catty, hissing, and jabbing at other women. And I thought she was joking because she was playful and she was humorous to me. And I realized that she wasn't. And that was the moment for me when I realized this really does have an impact. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it can change in that way. So mm-hmm. it's great to hear that your dad is is doing so well. We're going to talk quite a bit more about that. The book is an amazing framework for things that I really have an interest in talking with people about. It's really vulnerable and it's full of story and all kinds of big life Um, things that matter to me. Mm -hmm. I want to start, though, with something that you shared in a story about, I think it was your first time preparing the the dark, early, middle of the night, morning before the Leadville Trail 100. You were reading out loud to yourself a Dr. Seuss book, (laughs) All the Places You'll Go. And I was just curious, and and also as an athlete, though certainly a recreational one and not on your world-class level, I'm just curious about that, that approach. Is it well, first of all, why that book? Why out loud? Why to yourself? And is it a ritual you maintain? <laughs> yeah. You know, that particular, um, yeah, so that was 2013. I was doing the the Lead Man, now called Lead Challenge series that some of the listeners might be familiar with, part of the Leadville Race series. You kind of do five of their races throughout the summer and add up the time. And, and the last one in the series is, is of course, the 100-mile run, the Leadville Trail 100, the race across the sky. You know, it's a, a legendary thing, and it's something I'd been around for my entire life. And it was, it was my first time doing that race. Uh, and I just um, 
you know, I've always, I've always kind of liked the, the cheesy motivation, uh, <laughs> you know, like in, when I was in high school and college, it was always like eye of the tiger, you know, listening right, to right. that, like before my track races. And, um, you know, I remember my favorite teacher's classroom, he had like all those little posters around the wall, you know, it'd have a picture of a rock climber and it would say dream big or, you know, something like that. I've kind of just, I've, I've liked tapping into inspiration, you know, whether it's through music or quotes or thinking of, um, you know, people I care about or, uh, whatever. And so, um, at that time I had, uh, um, I was a high school English teacher, uh, for seven years in Denver and in, uh, Jeffco Public Schools, and um, I loved reading Dr. Seuss's "Oh, the Places You Go" uh, to my high school seniors, like the last day of school, because it's such a, it's an inspirational book, and it also taps into you know you're you're gonna have tough times, you'll find yourself uh, you know stuck in a lurch, um, but that's okay. Like you'll you'll rise again, you know you'll be high flying, uh, and. So I think it was fresh in my mind because of that. And, you know, why it may have also, I remember that moment now, you know, we were in our teeny little old janky, for lack of a better word, camping trailer in in Leadville, you know, uh, parked in in my buddy Cannon's uh, driveway. And uh, that book was probably there because we'd been reading it to our kids. You know, they would have been... um, to, I guess in 2013, Wyatt was two and, and Lila was a, a baby, you know, she was uh, six months old, um, you know, so the book was there and, and I kind of realized like, oh, this is what, what a better, like you want to start these races with some good momentum and positive enthusiasm. I'll, I'll read this book to myself. <laughs> I think that's, well, it's, it's funny and, and amusing and awesome. And mm-hmm. it's something that I'm going to guess you might be the only person who's ever done that, or at least until people have heard you say it, and they might <laughs> Maybe, be like, I'm going to check this out. Yeah, I don't know. I, you know, I mean, people do all kinds of cheesy, funny things. I mean, the, you know, there's an academic discipline called applied positive psychology. And, uh, you know, I think there's uh, truth and in, in power in that. And I, I think... It's not that we uh, don't recognize our our challenges, our lows, our uh, you know our weaknesses, um, but also you know trying to keep keep the eye on on the good stuff, the optimism. I think that's powerful, and that's definitely something that, you know I've gotten from from my parents from the start. Absolutely, it's th- that positive self talk and that optimism, especially in what you do with endurance uh, sports. It's essential. Is it not? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's essential there, and 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 also, I would say, even more importantly, life in general. You know, sure, we sure. all do hard things, and, and even the good things—marriage, parenting, um, you know, coaching—these kind of things. Like, they're really good, and they're hard. They're going to have low low moments. You know, you you describe it as cheesy. Well, I had sort <laughs> of one of those things myself that came to me when going through your book, and I'm I'm like Forrest Gump. Right now, he made the comparison that life is like a box of chocolates. But the only thing I can keep thinking and going through endurance sports and these these stories and these experiences, life is a lot more. If you want a metaphor, I think endurance sports really has it because it's it's even more than a marathon and it has its ups and its downs. And you really find yourself sometimes in these incredible lows and you need to have that optimism and that self-belief to rise back out of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big reason to do these kinds of activities. And and I think, uh, you know. 
bigger picture, stepping back, um, you know, in most human cultures and traditions over time, there's been these rites of passage Mm -hmm. where uh, young men and women go out and, you know, do something. It's usually something challenging, something with some uncertainty, uh, you know, something that's going to be seen as, you know, again, this is a, a key moment to to change, to grow, to unveil something, to discover something. And um, we don't have as much of that in our current culture. Uh, right. But going out, we, we find those uh, things. And for some of it, it is these endurance sports. There's lots of other ways to do it, but that might be one avenue to, uh, you know, explore some of that type of growth. I've heard somebody describe these things before as we've made our lives so comfortable in general throughout Mm -hmm. this society that then we've started looking for where can I test myself and where can I find this challenge and actually get uncomfortable. Yeah. You mentioned rites of passage. I have a son, my older son, who is coming up on 13, and this is Mm -hmm. something my wife and I have started to talk with him about. It isn't anything I experienced personally, you know, with any sort of ceremony or intention by parents or anyone. But we've been thinking about that and historically the place of that. And his question is, why? Why do we bother? Why do we want to do that? So, mm-hmm. okay, good place to start. And we're starting right at the basics as we also think through it. And I'm getting, you know, several months head start on this with mm-hmm. him, but trying to plant the seed and have him come around to realize there could be value in this. I'm going to have to trust this and go with you. But we need some of those things, I think. And, yeah. And, and not to just continue in the the status quo and comfort. Yeah. 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 That's a, it it turns out my son's 12 as well. And, uh, you know, even before we had kids, Amy and I would talk about like, Oh, what are, how are we going to make these rites of passage? You you know? And, and of course, before you have kids, you have no idea what parenting is like or how hard Uh, it is or, (laughs) you know, (laughs) how scrambled it's going to be. But, but I still, I I like that idea. And, um, you know, I, uh, I got into hunting as, as an adult and, uh, my son has been interested in it. He's he's come with me a, a, a lot. And in Colorado at age 12 is, is the first year um, you can harvest big game. And uh, that's something we plan to explore together. And, um, you know, that for me is absolutely could serve as a, you know, a rite of passage of sorts because it's a very challenging, mature, um, hard, heavy, and potentially rewarding thing to do. I'm curious how you got started in hunting as an adult Mm -hmm. because I grew up in a small rural town. All the kids around me were hunting. As it turned out, you know, my dad had stopped long before I came along. That wasn't part of my life. And so, again, it was rural. Kids would come in during deer season and be like, oh, I got a six point. I got this. And there were, you know, teachers would keep track of it on the chalkboard. At the time, (laughs) they were chalk. Uh, And I felt excluded. I didn't understand. Um, what that experience might be like. Yeah. And now as an adult, I I guess I don't actually have interest in it at mm-hmm. this point in my life. But I also am curious, again, how did you get started and learn how to do it as an adult? Yeah, yeah. That's a good question. I, I mean, um, I've always liked the outdoors. I, it, this may sound ironic. I've always loved animals. Animals have always been a huge part of my life, the, the natural world, ecology, uh, pets, um, you know, it's just always something I've been interested in. And as, uh, boy, you know, I was mid thirties and, um, some of my friends were doing it. I, I also, uh, you know, I had been racing, racing, racing these ultra runs, mountain bike races, adventure races, you know, they'd been a huge part of my life and I I would stay still are, but, um, in some ways I was ready to maybe change it a little bit. You know, it's not going to be all about, 
the podium or the sponsorships or the prize money or, or whatever, um, you know, re-envisioning who am I going to be sort of as, you know, a, a middle-aged adult. Uh, and, you know, this hunting thing came along. Really, it just started with a, a friend of mine who who started as a running buddy, you know, and he had an elk tag and he grew up doing it. And it was like, hey, let's, I'll come out with you one day, you know, and I ran out there into the woods to where he was camping and we trekked around all day <laughs> and we, and we had this, you know, as it turns out, it's really, really hard to find elk out in the mountains. <laughs> But this day, man, they were there, they were bugling off. And I grew up in Evergreen where, where elk live year round and especially in the rut, man, they're rutting right in town. So, you know, I, I've, I've seen bugling bull elk, you know, every day in September my entire life. And I thought, oh, how hard can it be to go out and, you know, find an elk? <laughs> and turns out it's really hard, but we had a good day. You know, we didn't harvest one, but we had fun and it was, you know, a lot of action. And I just thought, oh, maybe this is something I'll, I'll explore. And um, as I got further into it, I really realize this is an activity that's uh, pulling on a lot of the skills and interests I have as far as being outside, learning about ecology, you know, navigating with uh, with map or compass or phone, you know, playing the weather, the wind, uh, getting up high, just hiking around high in the mountains in the cold, you know, I kind of like that. So yeah. it's doing that, but it's also teaching me something. It's teaching me to slow down and just really be present and dial in and connect with nature, you know, whether or not a harvest occurs, which usually it doesn't, you know, the, the harvest it, itself, people think of hunting, that's what they think of, but there's a whole lot, you know, that's, that's a small percentage of the time. So it's taught me to, to really slow down, which, which is great. And I've really come to appreciate it's teaching me patience and navigating uncertainty, which you don't necessarily get if you're just hammering your bike, you know, up a trail as hard as you can with sweat in your eyes. Right. Maybe hunting does appeal to me because it's all <laughs> of those aspects. I yeah. actually did the same with fly fishing um, exactly. several years ago. Yeah. Yep. I had gone with my dad many years ago. Mm -hmm. I was already an adult yep. uh, in my 20s. He had taken me to some place in southern Missouri. I'd never been there. Trout are all around us. I mean, they're banging into my legs. They didn't care about us. And I, at one point, had my rod down my waders while I was getting something out, and a fish jumped on my fly. I mean, it was that sort of easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it gave me this impression, oh, how amazing, and fish are everywhere. And then yeah. I move out to Colorado many <laughs> years later, and it's not like that at all. Yeah. But what I became was, I figure, maybe that one fly fisherman who says, well, I'm out there just for the scenery anyway. Well, that's kind of a joke when, well, I don't catch anything because I'm not good at it, but I actually mean it. I'll go out there and waiters and stand in the river just because I want to be immersed in that environment yeah. and don't care if I catch. Yeah. So maybe hunting is for me if I just go out and I hike around and uh, enjoy in that experience in itself. Yeah, absolutely. A, lo a lot of these activities, it really is, it's being in nature, it's having that connection, you know, slowing down by slowing down or sometimes slowing down by going fast. You know, when I think of riding a mountain bike fast down a hill or, you know, shredding some powder up at Monarch, you know, you're going fast, but in some ways you're also slowing down and having this connection. Going inward, having yeah. the experience. Yeah. yeah. So I want to come back to your dad and the diagnosis with Alzheimer's. This is a key piece of, of this book. And I'm curious, you know, you've been very vulnerable and have shared emotions and shared uncertainties in this process. Do you remember that impact when they, I assume your parents were who first told you mm -hmm. about this diagnosis and how that felt, what, what that impact was? Did it even register? 
Oh yeah, it registered. <laughs> and, and it wasn't a surprise. I think probably for most families when a diagnosis of a neurodegenerative condition is is given, it's probably not a surprise to those who've who are, you know, around that person a lot. Uh, but it's still, yeah, it, it hit me like a ton of bricks and it shook me to the foundation in ways that, um, you know, impacted all, all areas of my life and basically, you know, felt, sent me scrambling and uh, feelings of panic and anxiety and, uh, and depression. And, uh, you know, looking back, there was a period of time of this crazy scramble where, I was trying to control things that I later realized were largely out of my control, whether that's a cure or treatments to slow things down or, you know, even the logistical side, you know, creating a trust and planning for care and, you know, where do we live? In the first two days, you know, I was we must build a house on my parents' property and live next to them, you know, like these kind of, again, just crazy jumps to try to control Something that I have realized is largely uncertain, and, and it's this balancing act because I think you can and should do many small things that add up to make a difference. Just like if you were training for a running race, you're going to do a whole lot of things, and they're going to add up to make you go faster or have more fun or <laughs> whatever you're trying to do. You can do that with managing a, a disease as well, the, the diet, the lifestyle, the supplements, medications, relationships, engagement, all of these things – they make a difference, and most of it is largely uncertain and out of our control, and we don't know what's going to happen and when and how it's going to look. When I ask you about it registering, you know, I, I realize what I mean is because a lot of times I certainly don't know what different medical things mean until we're mm-hmm. confronted with it. It's an experience you're having, and, oh, you know, this is now a crash course in learning about this thing. Yeah. And to have an understanding of what Alzheimer's would mean, you know, we think of it as a, as a cognitive thing, a brain thing, but how does it actually end up impacting this person's life and rippling out and impacting the lives of family members, loved ones, friends, social situations, whatever? Yeah. Um, and so it sounds like, I'm assuming, you know, it sounds like you had a good grip on it at, at the moment, but you also, I'm sure, have done a lot of learning since. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And, and I'm, you know, definitely not a, a medical professional or an Alzheimer's expert or anything like that. You know, I've, I've learned a whole lot about it in the last five years and continue to learn and, you know, try to stay up to date on, on you know, new drugs that might be coming down the pipeline and that kind of stuff. Um, I would say overall, you, you know, with Alzheimer's in particular, it's a, it's a much more varied and dynamic disease than than we might think. You know, the the layman's knowledge might be, oh, you know, oh, you lose some of your memory or right. whatever, right? And and obviously that's part of it. But you know, like I said, the the different you know, there's subtypes of Alzheimer's. There's there's various phases. It progresses in different ways for different people. Um, you know, someone maybe it starts with with word finding difficulties or navigational difficulties, you know, for someone else, maybe it, it starts with something else and looks different ways. You know, like I said, for some people, there's significant impacts on personality and, and maybe not for for others. So, um, you know, th- with those subtypes, with the diagnosis and good medical care, the person and their family might be able to, you know, learn a little bit more about what may or may not be expected. Um, but there's also a whole lot of, of variety and range. Um, and even the the time span, you know, 
it's it's so uncertain and and, and that's you know i i uh, you know the alzheimer's thing for us started you know i guess about a year and a half before the pandemic and and i kind of as the pandemic ca- came about i kind of you know, I had some moments where I was like, oh, man, we've kind of we've been in this mode of living with uncertainty here for, you know, a year and a half and gotten a little more used to it. And then all of a sudden the pandemic, it was like, wow, now everyone's forced into this. Right. <laughs> right? You know, here's this thing that came about that's impacting everyone. We don't know where it's going to go or how it's going to feel, how long it's going to last. Uh, you know, welcome to life. <laughs> right. Again, that metaphor with all of this ultra and endurance um the sports of this, there's a mm-hmm. lot of uncertainty. When you go yeah. into one of these things, a hundred mile race, just for example, let alone any of these multi-day things that like eco challenge that yeah. you've done, you don't even know that you're going to be able to finish because of all those uncertainties between yeah. start line and whatever yeah. the day holds. Your dad started journaling after the diagnosis, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. And eventually you would end up reading that journal or those journals. Uh, that was as part of the process for writing this book. Is that right? You know, the the journaling itself started well before the, the book was an idea. And I, and I think that was something, you know, I don't know. It was probably originally my mom's idea of, you know, just something. It, 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 it checks a lot of boxes. Here's an intellectual thing to do. And, you know, any any anytime you're activating the brain and pushing that line, that's a good part of the treatment. You know, it's a way for them to connect together because even from the start, it was mostly – my dad dictating to, to my mom, you know, his, his, uh, coordination to be able to write was already declining very quickly. So most of it was him speaking and she was writing it down. So, um, and it was also a way to, you know, here, maybe we can create this, this thing that, uh, you know, is it for the grandkids or is it for, you know, who knows uh, how do you use this, but it becomes part of the family, you know, photo album of right. sorts. So that's how it initially started. And, and then, yeah, as the book idea came about, as we realized, uh, you know, we've got some momentum, you know, a couple years later, we have a publishing contract, you know, where is this going to go? And, and all of that, you know, this was giving my dad and I something to work on together. You know, obviously, he wasn't writing or doing emails or looking at contracts or anything, but it's still like a shared purpose. Uh, and then ev- eventually, um, Patrick Regan from here in Salida, uh, you know, joined the team as uh First, starting as a professional colleague, as a, a co-writer, and and then you know truly becoming a, a friend and teammate in our journey. Uh, but as far as you know, working through Dad's journaling content, mo- most of that during the book writing process was was Patrick's work. And and honestly, that was, that was two reasons. The first one is he could do a better job at looking at this. You know, from. Uh, a more separate viewpoint of where is this going to fit? You know, what's good? What are people going to connect with, et cetera? And, and honestly, also, like, I wasn't ready to to read through it. it. It was too hard, you know, even, I don't know, this would have been what, tw- probably 2021 mostly, you know, these pages and pages of, of journals and material. And, and a lot of it, you know, coming from dad's low points and, you know, things that were, that he was struggling with, um, it was too. I I wasn't ready to to even read it, um, you know. Sure. And, and thank goodness that Patrick was. Yeah, the the emotions of living through that and then having to try to objectively yeah. figure out what to include. I, yeah. Yep. You know, there's an intimacy to the way that came about between your parents. Mm-hmm. For your dad to dictate and then your mom to take that down and to help him write and. 
there are so many instances in the stories you share of the intimacy and the love and the care and the closeness of your family, which I'm also really intrigued by and, and appreciate. But that was one especially poignant example to me of the intimacy between the two of them to be able to share in that way. And for your dad to, to of course, trust your mom. And, and that's what we would hope for in any marriage, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But we know that's not always the case, right? Yeah. yeah. So my question, I guess, in your reviewing of the journals, you've answered that in saying you, you didn't dive deep. Did you spend some time in there? Did you try and, and, and have you gone into any of it all? Or did it really just all fall to Patrick and then you only know as much as really what he pulled out. You know, starting with, yeah, I've looked at what Patrick pulled out, and obviously that was a big piece of the book writing process, you know, now a couple years ago. Um, and, and since then at times I've, I've been a little more ready to, you know, to read some of it and interact with it and a little bit more um, knowledgeable and accepting of like this idea of, of ambiguous loss where, you know, we're on a journey and, and you've got these – you know, phases of, of grief, grief of, you know, anger, uh, you know, questioning, et cetera. And that these, these aren't, um, fixed stages. It's not like, oh, I'm done with stage two. Now I'm in stage three and, you know, so forth. And now I'm done with it. You know, these are things that that are going to cycle through, uh, you know, and that I've come to expect. Um, and, and even looking ahead, you know, I and we still don't know where this is going. And and I haven't, you know, someone might be listening to this and thinking, oh, my parent or grandparent or spouse or whatever, you know, is in a, a much later stage of Alzheimer's dementia. And that, that looks a lot different from where dad's at right now, you know. How do is I, he Do I know that? how to navigate that? Do I know what to tell people? Not really, you know. I haven't been there. <laughs> I'm trying to prepare for it. Yeah, y- you know, I mean – and thanks for asking, Adam. And, and overall, like I said, he's he's choosing to find happiness. Um, you know, he, uh, for example, here's a guy who's traveled all over the world, doing his races, working as an attorney, driving all over Colorado and Wyoming and wherever, you know, to meet people on his cases. And, you know, and then he'd drive into the mountains and go for a run, you know, just explore. Like he was, he always wanted to be a mountain man. And he kind of, you know, he, he, he did that. Um, that was a big part of his life and what he did. And, you know, 2018, he's 64 and hey, Mace, you got Alzheimer's and guess what? You can never drive again. Um, and that was, you know, that was really hard for him to, swallow um but you know he he accepted it and uh you know his 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 range of what he can do alone has has constricted you know two years ago he could ride his bike alone around my parents neighborhood in evergreen you know these rural mountain roads and and a year ago he could he could run a loop around the neighborhood you know and know how to get back home and you know, currently the place he can go alone is a little dirt road right next to my parents' house. And dad goes up there and he does his repeats and he, and he kind of, you know, power hikes up it and he goes down really slow and timidly because his balance is, is very challenged. And, and because of the visual spatial challenges, it looks like a really steep, dangerous hill. You know, this is something, you know, 15 years ago, he would have ridden his bike down it at 40 miles an hour and, <laughs> you know, not thought twice. But that that's where he is now. And the, and the point is, although the range has constricted, I tell you what, man, he is pumped to get out there every single day, you know, and, and all, you know, I, I, we try to talk every day or maybe we record a podcast together or something. And, you know, the attitude could be, oh, I used to go everywhere and now this is all I can do. 
but it's it's more of like man bud this place is awesome like you know and, and when i'm there we go out and we do it together and you know he'll say man bud you gotta you gotta tell your clients about this because this is the best spot to train for the leadville 100 and <laughs> you know the point is like he's still he's still pumped and and i think you also if you were to talk with him or you know even you know meet him at a book thing or podcast or whatever you you know you may not realize the the discrepancy in ability areas you know here's one ability as far as holding a conversation or just you know shooting the shit and you know well watch him try to get dressed on his own you know totally impossible right or 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 you know dad sitting on the couch and and i go pammy where the the hell is the front door you know i know i just asked you it and oh mason's still over there and then they laugh and you know (laughs) a few minutes later he's trying to find the door again you know humor is part of it isn't it Humor is a huge part of it, yeah. And and I also, you know, I mean, shout out to my mom. Like, she's the real hero of the story. And, and you know, if anyone's listening to this and they're a caregiver for someone who has a neurodegenerative condition or, or anything else, I mean, those people are the, the true heroes who dig deep day after day after day um, and really do the hard things and really exemplify what, what love means. Let's talk about your mom a little bit. Because she also, and, and the two of them together, have had a number of significant health challenges. Mm-hmm. She's had three organ transplants Yep. over a period of many years, right? But, yeah, I mean, any one of those would be perhaps a life-changing, certainly a significant something in that person's life. They went through her health and needing three of those over time. The relationship back and forth and the mm-hmm. care, again, the love, the... All of that, it's it's amazing to hear about from the outside. I'm curious, as the son of these two and what you have, um, you know, witnessed and, and learned from them in, in that sense of love and care and resilience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard it said that for, for a couple navigating very significant adversity, it, it, you know, it, it can pull people apart and or push them together, you know, and maybe even both. But I, I think for my parents, these these challenges, you know, she she needed a liver transplant in 1990. My sister and I were, were young children, and then she got a kidney from her brother about 10 years later, and, and then that one kind of petered out after 15 years, and she got a, another kidney from her other brother. <laughs> uh, this is Eric and Brian friend, Pence. Uh, <laughs> shout out to those guys. Um, so she got that in 2017. But it, for my parents, the, these were adversities that, that brought them together, and they really were uh, a team. And they were also, um, you know, I would say uh, un unabashedly and unfailingly optimistic about it that things will work out and we'll figure things out together as as it may come um and they did and they've they've continued to carry that on through the alzheimer's process um they continue to teach me what it means to um to love deeply and to and to dig into support your family you know i mean i was thinking that the other day when i was at my parents house in evergreen and for a lot of people with you know again these neurodegenerative conditions things like like showering you know the it's like the nervous system changes and and there's just a lot of uncertainty and it's hard to tell what what's where and how do you make it hot cold you know like all, all this kind of stuff and currently the best fit is like for my mom to wash my dad's hair in the sink and and like i watch them do that and i'm like this is this is love, you know? Right. 
Yeah, it's again intimacy. Yeah, is the word that it just keeps coming to mind. Yeah. Um, but also with that resilience and optimism. Mm-hmm. You described your parents in the book as being very laid back, being adventurers, not being planners. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I wonder if that was who they were inherently. It kind of came across that way. But now that we're talking about all these these points of adversity in their lives together, I wonder if people who encounter that more tend to learn, okay, here's here's what really is serious. Here's what's not. Here's what I know I can make it through. Here is, you know, I don't need to freak out about this. Yeah. I can handle it. I'll be laid back because when we go through enough, we eventually learn, you know what? I just don't know what's right around the next corner. Maybe I've finally learned the life lesson. Stop worrying about it. Stop trying to anticipate because, you know, life is what happens while you're making other plans. Yeah, yeah. That's what I think. I, I think it's probably a combination of both. I think generally they both probably are easygoing in, in many ways. And I mean, I remember as, as a kid, you know, me and my parents and my sister, Caitlin, and, and later on our, our uh, foster brothers and sisters and my sister, Donna, I mean, we'd literally get in the car for a road trip and it'd be like, all right, we're all in the car. We got, got all our shit. Like, <laughs> where are we going? <laughs> like the, the plan literally was like drive West and, <laughs> and see what happens, you know? And that was just whether that was our, I don't know why that became our style, but like we were all pretty comfortable with that. And and I do think, uh, I think what you said, the second part is also very true for me. I mean, seeing my dad's journey with Alzheimer's, I mean, for me, it's been like the first time I've looked at my own mortality, like square in the face. And, and it makes you ask a lot of questions of how am I living? How am I spending my time? How am I, what am I like worrying about and or valuing and, and not worrying about or valuing? And, and at least for me, one of the conclusions is a lot of the things that people worry about and try to control really don't matter that much, you know. And maybe some of the things that, that you know, again, whether it's a general culture or population, people don't emphasize do matter. Uh, like for me, getting outside every day and being active, connecting with nature, working, exercising, breathing – it's absolutely integral to my human experience and who I am. And and I so I prioritize it in, in my work list, you know, like one story could be like, oh, I'll go out and, you know, do something for myself or to exercise or whatever when when the work list is done. And I've kind of realized, well, like the work list is gonna be there. <laughs> you yeah. know, if that's my attitude, I'm never gonna do anything. So it's gonna be there. <laughs> Here I go. And I'll keep doing my best and I'll be okay with not finishing everything and moving things around and, you know, having things feel like a shit show and, and going, you know, going to, well, okay, now it's time to take the kids to soccer practice. So that's what I do. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, you know, that, that work list I've described here before as yeah. half of every day ends up getting kicked to some other time because I yeah. didn't get there. Yep. And just like, you know, say preparing for a conversation on a podcast. Yeah. I can worry about that for the week in advance and think I should get this done every day. And then I finally have realized, you know what, I'm going to get it done Yeah, because I'm not going to falter on that. But that doesn't mean I don't need and can't live my life along the way. I don't have to place it six days ahead in front of, yeah. am I going to get my bike riding? Am I going to get a run in, you know, whatever else is going on yeah. with the family? Yeah. You know, you have described yourself though, as being somebody who has, I don't know about now as much, but in the past dealt with anxiety. Yeah. And I wondered how, considering you're talking about your parents' not exhibiting that, at least not living their life by it. I wondered if you 
can share, you know, what that experience was for you, if you have any sense of where it maybe came mm-hmm. from, did it at some point just become a compensation for my parents? I never know where we're going because they just said <laughs> West, right? And was that a matter of stability? I mean, I could yeah. speculate all yeah. day long, but yeah. I'm curious what, because this is something, I mean, I have anxiety. You mentioned depression. Yeah. You mentioned alcohol abuse. Mm-hmm. I have years with all of those things yeah. in my past. And so it's something that resonates and I'd love to learn what your experience with that yeah. has been and where you stand now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm definitely not a mental health expert or professional or anything. I'm very interested in it, you know, starting with like, oh, you know, how how do I keep myself in a in a good place so that I can enjoy life and support my family. Um you know, where does it come from? Who knows? I th- I think uh in the nature versus nurture Nature plays an enormous role. And, and, you know, I think a lot of people who are parents, you know, maybe have a couple kids like, boy, ours have been very different from the start. (laughs) They're both wonderful and they have their quirks and they are very different. (laughs) You know, we know, you know, you mentioned alcoholism. I mean, I talk about it in the book, like, you know, significant family history there on on all sides, including anxiety, depression, those kind of things. And and how do those relate to alcoholism? Well, there's probably a lot of connection there. You know, I think most people who have an addiction, at least in my opinion, a lot of it starts with, you know, trying to make something feel a little bit better. You know, it's not people who are irresponsible or, you know, whatever, you know, something certain they're trying to ease it a little bit. Um, Right. It's some sort of escape or, or a, yeah. a coping something. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, I mean, all, all of that said, yes, we all have our natural brain chemistry and wiring and probably a lot of uh, what pushes us to, you know, th- have the feel-good intensity of running 100 miles or, you know, jumping off the cornice up at Monarch. Or, you know, like the, there's probably another side of that that may connect to becoming too reliant on alcohol or, you know, something else. Um, heading west without a plan, uh, that does n- that's never made me feel anxious. That's like okay, for, for okay. whatever reason, you know. And, and again, it's like our, you know, humans are, we all develop on a spectrum physically, psychologically, what we like, what we don't like. You know, I, I've come to a point like it's not right or wrong. We're just, we're all different. You know, for some people, it feels really good to like, you know, go out and bike as hard as you can for three hours, Right. Some people are like, exercise, I hate, I, how do I get to exercise? And, and like, I'm like, how the hell does someone not exercise? If I didn't exercise, I'd be right. in a really bad place. So it just speaks to that range. And I, I think, you know, if you think of humans as a species, it's better to have a range, different likes, di- just like strengths, weaknesses, quirks, you know, that's just, it's all, it's all part of who we are. So, you know, as far as the anxiety of the ex- you know, experience. One thing I'm happy about is I think kids growing up now through their parents, through schools and just culture in general, there there's more of an environment of kids learning to know their feelings and talk about their feelings and, and you know, label, express, etc. When I was a kid, never would I have said, I'm feeling anxious. You know, I was well into my 30s when I kind of realized like, oh, here's this feeling I have a lot. And this is what it's called. It's called anxiety. And like, here's some tools and things you can do with it, you know. And that's really good. It's really powerful. And I'm glad that my kids are growing up in a world where that's more of a normal part of the human experience. To have the language to be able to talk about it. Yeah. To have it for yourself, let yeah. alone be able to talk with 
the significant people in our lives, the partner, spouses, whoever we have close later with everybody as parents with our kids. Yeah. I'm thinking of your the amount of exercise and activity you get. And of course, that is medicine, I think, in itself. I had a therapist many years ago tell me, for somebody as intense as you, you need, I mean, a minimum 90 minutes a day of intense workout. You need to be getting physical. Yeah. And I hadn't really thought maybe necessarily a lot about it because I had always been active. I'd always played sports. I'd always been out there. Yeah. But I, like you just said, I definitely know it when I'm not getting out there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to deal with injury or something from running, which I have been in recent months, I finally just bought a gravel bike because I can't take not being able to run the way I want. I need to be getting out on a consistent basis. And mentally, I had to get past, okay, next week, I'm going to be back at it next week. Well, now my fitness is shot. Emotions are rocked. I'm not the best me at home. Mm-hmm. And and that is definitely one one form of medicine and being able to deal with these things that I think for a lot of us is important. And yeah. I agree. I don't know how some people are able to go without it and say, I don't want exercise. I don't want anything to do with it. But it, I guess, works for them. Yeah, and well, yeah. it does. Yeah, we're not all the same. You know? Yeah, that diversity <laughs> yeah. is, there's definitely yeah. value. I think it's a natural assumption to think like, oh, you know, I like something or something's easy for me. It's got to, like, why don't, why don't everyone else just do it? Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. I, I like it. This is the right way <laughs> yeah, to see it. Exactly. This is the right thing. Why yeah. doesn't everybody agree? Sure. Yeah. Um, so the father-son relationship here especially is also of interest to me. I've mentioned the intimacy and care and closeness of your family, but the the father son thing in particular i have said in a previous conversation on this podcast that's not the relationship i have with my father i've not had one that was very close at all throughout adulthood but your dad i think you even described as a hero at some point in the book sounds like he certainly was a mentor you both have been engaged and and been elite in this endurance athletic um, realm what is that, if you can, I don't even know if you can put it in a nutshell, but what is that relationship as you have viewed it maybe as a kid, but now as a man who has his own kids? And then, of course, we have Alzheimer's and that has shifted things as well. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, that, that's an answer that could <laughs> take hours potentially. But, you know, in, in a nutshell, like I, I got lucky, <laughs> you know, I, I think I got lucky to have parents who are both highly invested in in parenting and uh, you know are there are there things that I I will will and do do differently than my parents did uh, you know of course I mean that's that's natural but yeah I, ju- I just got lucky and I think uh, for my dad you know maybe some of it stemmed from I talk about it in the book his um, his mom had alcohol abuse disorder and uh, you know that was a significant factor in in his you know, in his household growing up and, you know, he kind of recognized when he became an adult, I, I don't want there to be yelling, uh, you know, chaos. I mean, she was, she was a loving person, uh, you know, a good mother and it's, you know, that's really hard. And, and if you go back to the fifties and sixties, like, you know, man, they didn't have counseling. They didn't have, you couldn't like go talk to people and figure this out. And then it's like, you know, this is, this is a weakness or this is a, you know, a character flaw or something like that. It was, it was a different world, you know, thank goodness there are options and, you know, a different type of understanding now. Um, anyway, yeah, I, I just, I got, I got lucky. I got lucky that, you know, it turned, I, I think my dad and I are wired very similarly and it turned out that, um, some of the things that that he started being interested in appealed to me as well. And and then there were a number of years where the fact that like, 
you know, we both liked going, you know, we lived in Leadville or excuse me, we lived in Evergreen. We drive up to Leadville and do a snowshoe race on Saturdays. Like we both really liked that. And probably the fact that we both liked it kept us both interested. You know, I, I mean, I couldn't drive myself, <laughs> but my dad wanted to go anyway. So, you know, it was, it's shared experiences. And I would say more of, uh, you know, more, more than being, you know, deep, uh, heartfelt conversations about feelings or emotions or whatever, you know, is more like parallel play. We're spending time together doing these things we like outside and traveling to it. And, you know, that's, that's how we connected. So yeah, I, I got really lucky. And then, you know, to jump forward, here I was, mid-30s, going along, you know, I feel like I'm an adult, I got, you know, career, kids, house, uh, you know, all these things. And then this diagnosis came along, and, and you know, part of, part of the way I was able to stop the initial panic and spiraling that I talked about was accepting that I, now I need to grow up in a whole new way, um, that I didn't expect, that I didn't expect to come this soon, uh, but, but I need to grow up and figure out what that means. Um, you said in the book that it shifted your place in the family, kind of what that role was. Yeah, yeah I think it's – and that's a natural thing. Again, you know, you look at – step back, look at human history. Like, you know, <laughs> that's that's how it works. Like, you know, little infants, little kids, like they need a lot of help to survive and, you know – People help them. And, th and then for some period of time, most humans go through a period where you can kind of take care of yourself and take care of other people. And then probably you get to a point later in life where you need someone to take care of you a lot uh, again. Um, the fact that it was happening at that point, you know, when my dad was still super strong physically and excited about living and, you know, vivacious, energetic, et cetera, it was, it, it came about a lot. I, I had to accept that it was happening a lot sooner than, than I thought. And I also had to rewire my thinking to hear someone who, you know, for me has, has always been the leader, the person I'm going to, you know, literally to lead me physically or drive me somewhere, or, you know, lead me through something hard or, or to ask for advice, you know, on whatever. All right. Um, you know, I'm going to have to take that on with, with that person and be okay with it. And, and, you know, I was, I was able to back to the rite of passage. I mean, in some ways going to Fiji and doing this adventure race, you know, <laughs> whether or not we finish or win or whatever, like towing that line, getting there, that was a huge rite of passage for both of us. And it made me realize I can lead in a different way and, and feel okay about it. And I think also for dad, that was a huge step because accepting help is also a really hard thing to do. And and I think, again, you know, people in general, maybe we're getting a little more used to that. But, but like for a man of his generation, you know, oh, I'm going to accept help with, with this or that, whether it's carrying my pack out on the course or, you know, something else around the house. That was a hard thing. And, and to see the way that he even amidst cognitive decline has continued to like – put trust and accepting help, it's, it's been beautiful. And to accept that for me, you know, mostly from my mom, but also from me and from his other kids and even from his grandkids to accept like, it's okay for my grandkids to like hold my hand crossing the street, you know, so we can make it safely. And, um, you know, it's kind of making me tear up, but it's a beautiful thing to see. And, I, and I'm glad. Do I wish that my kid's grandfather didn't have Alzheimer's? Of, of course I do. Um, 
And am I glad that they get to, you know, help him cross the street or put his shoes on and learn to love him that way? Um, I, uh, I'm really glad. This speaks just further to that closeness, that love that is, I know I keep coming back to this, the love and the intimacy and closeness, but I think it's because it stands out so much to me as, I don't know if it's extraordinary, but I'm trying to place myself in that kind of family and see what that feels like, to be honest. And I think it's wonderful and I'm happy for all of you and happy for your kids that they get this experience. And it seems like you described your parents coming closer through adversity in life. It sounds like the circles outward from the family, you know, the kids, grandkids, everyone involved is also now coming together in this close way. And they're learning how to do all of this walk together. Your family is extraordinary on these trails and all these races too. <laughs> you have one of the uncles you mentioned who had um, donated a, a kidney, I believe, to mm -hmm. your mother. Has finished the Leadville Trail 100 nearly 30 times. He was think, going yeah, close I think to that. 27 or something. Yeah, this is a uh, uh, uncle Uncle Lee Eric Pence. He lives in Leadville. Uh, yeah, I mean he started that thing every year. You know, since his I don't know early 20s. <laughs> you know, right. It's kind of what he does. Well, and for people who are not familiar with what this race is, it's an annual race. That's not just 27 times. It's 27 years. Yeah. There's oh, a lot yeah. of aging. There's a lot of everything in that yeah. and life oh, yeah. in yeah. that process. But your family has been so involved. I mean, seven family members have finished that particular race. It's, it's an iconic, legendary race. And it's just one mm -hmm. example. What you and your dad have done with all kinds of events, and we, we mentioned Eco Challenge Fiji as an example, any one of your days out there like this is the adventure, the trip, the experience of a lifetime for statistically, I will say everyone on this planet. Because the numbers percentage-wise, when there's billions of people on the planet, there's only thousands of people who do what you do. And that's mm -hmm. a small number in comparison. So it's so extraordinary. Um, if we come back to the book and some of the messages in that, as fast as we can, as slow as we must, was one that you repeated a number of times. It stands out. I think we can apply that again. It's taking what happens on a, on a trail or a course and applying to life. Yeah. You know, we deal with life. We go as fast as we can, but we slow down. We rest. We deal with what we need to. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's meeting, it's meeting ourselves and the people around us where we are or where they are in a given area. You know, I mean, I, I, I used to be a teacher and I, obviously I'm really interested in parenting and education. You know, you look at here, here's a class of sixth graders. Well, the fact that you're sixth grade doesn't mean you're all at the exact point in math or English or, or in social interactions or empathy or, you know, confidence or whatever. You know, let's, let's see if we can hone in as teachers and adults and community members and just meet meet people where they are and help them move forward, you know, go as fast as you can, but also as slow as you must simultaneously. I think another key one that I'm going to end here with is DNF, which of mm. course yep. we know is do not finish in a race, but yeah. the way you took that and applied that as do not forget, do not forget to show up in your lives with courage. And well, and another one, like your dad said, is that, you know, we, we, we beat all the people who are too afraid to show up. They don't have that courage and even come to the start line to have that 
courage to show up in the way that that you do in life and the way that your family does with your dad is it's it's just inspiring and and I love getting to hear this story from you. Yeah. Well, thanks Adam. It's it's been a pleasure and I you know, I mean, I think to our community out there who's listening to this, I mean, there's there's a lot of heroes out there. People are digging deep all the time to support each other and that that could be your immediate family. You know, it, it could be the greater community, but um, that's a feeling that I get living here in Chafee County, and and um, it feels really good. So let's keep doing that. Life's a team sport. Absolutely. I'm going to include links uh, that are relevant here for people in the show notes at wearechafee.org, and people will be able to find their way to the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure it's it's easy and it's out there, and I encourage people to dig in. Yeah, so. I tell them to go to Salida Books. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Support independent bookstores. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I think John's you, got Travis. some copies. Yeah, thanks, you guys. All right, that was Travis Macy. If our conversation here today sparked curiosity for you, you can learn more in this episode's show notes at wearechafee.org. If you have comments or know someone in Chafee County, Colorado, who I should consider talking with on the podcast, you can email us at info at wearechafee.org. We invite you to rate and review the We Are Chafee Looking Upstream podcast on Apple, Spotify, or whatever platform you use with that functionality. We also invite you to tell others about the Looking Upstream podcast so you can help us to keep growing community and connection through conversation. Once again, I'm Adam Williams, host, producer, and photographer. John Prey is engineer and producer. Thank you to KHEN 106.9 FM Community Radio, where we recorded today's conversation in Salida, Colorado. To Heather Gorpy for graphic and web design. To Andrea Carlstrom, Director of Chafee County Public Health and Environment. And to Lisa Martin, Community Advocacy Coordinator for the We Are Chafee Storytelling Initiative. The We Are Chafee Looking Upstream podcast is a collaboration with the Chafee County Department of Public Health and the Chafee Housing Authority, and it's supported by the Colorado Public Health and Environment Office of Health Disparities. You can learn more about the Looking Upstream podcast and related storytelling initiatives at wearechafee.org and on Instagram and Facebook at wearechafee. Lastly, thank you for listening. And remember, as we say here at We Are Chafee, be human, share stories, share stories, make